When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Pax Britannica. The Scottish Revolution interview series. Gothic revivalism and covenanted confederalism with Professor Alan McInnes. Welcome to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution interview series. Today I'm delighted to speak with Alan McInnes, Emeritus Professor in History at the University of Strathclyde. Professor McInnes has had and continues to have a very productive career. One of the most valuable pieces I've used throughout the narrative has been his The British Revolution, 1629-60. I fully expect his work will be a constant companion for some time to come. His most recent work considers Jacobitism, the Act of Union, and Scottish involvement in the late Stuart British Empire. So it's a pleasure to speak with him today. Thank you for joining me today, Professor McInnes. Welcome. You published The British Revolution in 2004, I believe. Now, what was your intention behind writing The British Revolution? Where was the gap in the historiography that you were hoping that it was going to, to fill? Well, I think it was all very much part of the 90s, the revival of what they called New British History in the 90s. And I felt... Partly that was just broadening the English debate, but it had to be looked at in other areas. And uh, particularly also after the Irish came in, I thought, well, you know, Scottish perspectives are being relegated to footnotes here. And I felt it was time to redress it. And I also was very keen to promote a non-Anglo-centric perspective on uh, British history. And not to say, not to deny that England is the most important of the three of the three kingdoms, but to say that nothing was totally dominated by England. And the inspiration for this also came from abroad. It was Kunisberg who wrote the article that England had two revolutions in the 17th century, 
both of which required foreign intervention. The first was by the Scots, the second by the Dutch. And, you know, English historians took on the second, but not necessarily the first. So that really is what motivated me, I think, to write the book. I think that's a good point to be made, that you cannot take the events of England and the English Revolution in isolation. You have to keep these, mm. these external factors in mind. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about how the Scots and the Irish, in particular, play a role in this, in this larger crisis. Well, I think we have to go further than that because it takes place against the background of the Thirty Years' War. Mm. And the very important uh, aspect of the Thirty Years' War was the increasing alliance between the French, the Dutch and the Swedes. Mm-hmm. And that played a big role. And also when the Scots had their breakdown with Charles I, it wasn't just because of Charles's behaviour to Scotland. Charles was also alienating the French, the Dutch and, the, and particularly the Swedes for this pro-Habsburg policy. So effectively, the Scots, the first, the Bishops' Wars, I would argue, was actually the Scottish or the British theatre of the Thirty Years' War. So we have to look at a much broader perspective than this. And that is why it's not just those Scots came in and the English shires revolted. The Scots, the whole thing took place against a background of the Thirty Years' War, which continued to influence the role of the, or the formation of the wars of the three kingdoms. So I think it's a the much broader picture. It's not just a question of looking at English history or Scottish history as devolved British history. I think you have to look at the broader European dimensions of the time. And that really is why I think Scotland stands out as being part of a general European uh, reaction against the centralising monarchy. We saw the same thing happening, as Elliot pointed out, in Portugal and indeed in Catalonia. So, you know, it was just to look at this as a broader context. It's not all about domestic policy or even British policy. There's a wider European consideration. Without the revolution kicking off in Scotland, it would not have happened in Ireland or in England. And clearly there are self-motivating factors in Ireland and in England. But the trigger to this was actually the Scottish revolt, which made revolts elsewhere feasible. And the, the, you know, the, the Irish have often been looking to sort of claim their revolt is unique. It's not. It's just simply part of a broader European framework. The Scots kicked it off, the Irish followed, and then the English followed on from that. Let's lean into the, the Irish aspect of this, because in, in your book, you make a very compelling case that the Irish rebels of 1641, they look to Scotland. They look to Scottish success on the battlefield and in the political constitutional sphere, and they hope to emulate that. Is that a fairly accurate way of putting it? Well, to, to, to a certain extent, yes. But of course, they had quite different perspectives. Of course. The Irish had, of course, the primarily Catholicism, and they also had the issues of plantation, which were not issues of great concern in Scotland, other than, of course, mm-hmm. to hold Scottish gains in Ulster. Aside from an example of uh, a successful rebellion against the king, what else did the Irish rebels take from the Scottish crisis? I think the, the right of resistance. You had to justify a right of resistance. Mm-hmm. And the Irish could see that. The Scots did that. <clears throat> and to a certain extent, put, coming together, <clears throat> sorry, things like their, their notion of confessional confederation is particularly strong in an Irish context, but it also is similar to what the tables emerged in Scotland and bringing together a revolutionary organisation. So it's not to say the Irish were aping the Scots, but they took inspiration from what the Scottish did and developed their own solutions and indeed did what the Scots did, is brought back forces from the continent Mm 
uh, and gave a professional backbone, which was more than adequate to counter the Scots in the 1640s, but also demonstrated that, you know, the European dimension was vital. It's just, whereas the Scots looked towards uh, France, Sweden and the Dutch, the Irish looked towards uh, Spain, in particular in the Habsburgs. A decade before the Scottish crisis kicks off, there's the push by Owen Roe O'Neill to get Spanish backing for some kind of invasion in like 1628, I believe. Yes, but there was the same thing you could say in Scotland in 1625, the McDonald's of Clan Ranald appealed to the papacy for backing. But that was just people, international variations of give us a job, looking for a job. Was it feasible? And the answer was not at that particular time. What made it feasible in 1640-41 was the prior rebellion or prior revolution in Scotland. And that made, that made Irish insurgency very feasible which it certainly wasn't in the earlier example of Owen and the O'Neills. They wanted external help. They wanted to build up their own position. Mm-hmm. What actually happens with the Scots, the Scots demonstrated that you can do your own, uh, but you have backing. And what the Scots did is they were able to pull in uh, what they call other help troopers or mercenaries from the Dutch, from the Swedes, but also with French backing. And what the, what the Irish then did is they, they mounted the Confederacy and it did have to a certain extent French, but certainly had Spanish backing. So it was just a different approach to this, rather than calling for an invasion, it was actually releasing the very professional forces and doing this. And that's where there is a, a continuity with Scotland. It's not about trying to encourage necessarily Spanish invasion, which is, you know, goes back to the themes from the Spanish Armada onwards. Mm-hmm. It was looking at it from a new angle. And the, the Spanish invasion approach had largely failed in the early 17th century. But the model of releasing troops, professionally trained troops, bringing them back in and bringing into a coherent political organisation, that's where the Irish and the Scots picked up on common ground. It's one of the underestimated, under-researched areas is the Scottish-French connection. And the Scots, as we now know from some more recent research, is that the Scots uh, have been in contact with the French and they retained that contact as uh, Richelieu gave way to Mazarin. So there was, an, an indeed, right through into the um, 1640s, the Scots did have a stronger link to France than we probably appreciated. And the, indeed, most Scottish historians seem oblivious to that fact. But the, the French connection is very important, as the French were often the driving force in putting together alliances with the Swedes and the Dutch. I think some of the recent work you're, you're referring to is, I think, Professor Steve Murdoch's touched oh, on... Yes, Murdoch and stuff is excellent. Yes. Murdoch and Alexia Groschen and others, they demonstrated the Dutch and the and, you know people like uh, Catterall and others have demonstrated, but we still await a really detailed study on the Scottish-French. I've done some, but not enough. And the others have started out, but never finished. But there is really the one area to do is work in a very serious examination of the French archives and the Bibliothèque Nationale to establish how far the Scots are connected to the French. I agree, because it would be very interesting to have a full and detailed study of this, because you would expect on the surface viewing of it, Charles is married to a French princess, and yet in this moment of crisis, France does not really help. No, but it does stay in contact. And mm. the other person that's of fundamental importance is the Marquis of Lothian, one of our Giles' right-hand men. But Lothian was very much well-connected in France, and he had this links into... And, the real details examination of that is, is, is we still await that, that, that work. I mean, this is where the Irish have done better than the Scots. They've been much more thorough in investigating, particularly the Spanish and to a certain extent, French sources. The Scots, uh, as, you know, Scottish history becomes increasingly introverted and uh, insular 
in its approach. It's, it's missing out on foreign archives and looking at foreign archives. I mean, much of the current generation of, of Scottish historians who are coming to the fore singularly lack linguistic skills. Now, you referred to, you called it confessional confederalism a moment before, but in, in the British Revolution, I believe you call it covenanted confederalism when you're specifically referring to the Scots. And I wonder if you could expand a bit more about that, because I know that you make the case that there's this push to have a confederation, almost, with England, with the Netherlands and with Sweden. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that. Yes, I mean, it was this attempt. Scots were never averse to some forms of union. It doesn't mean to say it had to be a political incorporation, but they were averse to union. And one of the obvious grounds of, you know, the Scots realised that for their own security, they had to build alliances. And the obvious place to build alliances were, were those that they could have certain, as they felt, confessional links. The Dutch and the English are the most obvious. They also, to a limited extent, and not particularly successfully, with Lutheran Sweden. Mm. Although Sweden was not as a, in, intolerantly Lutheran in the 1630s as it was in the 1640s. But the Scots needed this. I mean, but the other thing that emerged and overtook this came actually from the Dutch and the Swedes, and they built up commercial confederation, which the English are then under Cromwell joined in. So if you like, a precursor of the commercial confederation was the Scottish confessional, and they saw that as a means of binding things together with a common form of, uh, for the Scots, of course, it was Presbyterianism, uh, and they sought to... Uh, Allies, but of course, and the English situation was much more complicated than that as the independents became more powerful than the Presbyterians. And so, therefore, prospects of a confessional confederation became outdated by 1645. And the Scots did not move quickly enough into areas of commercial confederation. Why do you think they didn't move quickly enough? Was there was it never really on the cards? I think the, the situation was that Scotland suffered a hammer blow, particularly when they, by 1648, the, the collapse of the engagement put the Scots completely on the defensive. And then, of course, the execution of Charles I, the Scots became wholly involved in trying to bring back Charles II. And that, in turn, if you like, took their eye off the wider European ball game. And they, they were increasingly on the defensive, and then Cromwell came in and took over the country. So uh, after that, the Scots struggled, indeed, they, thereafter, full stop, to become an independent European power. That's really interesting, because something you touch on in, in the book is, do the Covenanters desire to export their Presbyterianism, to, to uh, almost enforce their faith on the rest of Britain or the Three Kingdoms as a whole? No, that's why they use the word confederal. Confederal is to get agreement. It's not incorporation. The Scots are not empire builders. I mean, they do, by default, have more land under their control in 1644 than they've ever had. I mean, the northern counties of England and much of the province of Ulster and into the Midlands of Ireland. But that was not an attempt to make permanent land gains. Uh, has been misinterpreted by some English and Irish historians. It was an attempt to secure their base but the significant for the Scots was to move towards agreement and consensus, not to achieve it by imposition by force. They could see themselves what had happened in Scotland when Charles I was trying to impose Episcopalianism by force and by coercion. Just quite frankly, what was feasible. <clears throat> and the Scots didn't have the commitment or the resources to sustain this. Plus, they also, and this takes us back to the French connection, they had to keep the French on side and a very, very aggressive 
form of Presbyterianism, if you like, a Presbyterian imperialism or something, would just have lost their wider connection. So they had to keep these balls inside, but it was also just not feasible financially or militarily for the Scots to try and create some Presbyterian empire. And I don't think it was ever. I haven't come across anybody in their writing suggesting that. I've read somewhere a while ago about Presbyterian imperialism or Scottish imperialism in the sense of Scotland wanting to enforce Presbyterianism on England. This is, this is partly because of English resistance to Scots being in the north of England. I mean, there's a lot of quite good English work on this, uh, but it's, it's, it's based on people overreacting to the Scots and claiming this. I mean, the counter to that is when the Scots pulled out, many Presbyterians in England felt quite mortified. They felt they were being abandoned or lost out. What the Scots wanted to do was to shore up Presbyterianism in England, but what they underestimated was the desire in England for sectarianism, independence, what you want to call it, independence movement. They didn't want to be tied to a Presbyterian system. So therefore, a rigid attempt to impose a similar situation would not have worked. I mean, the Scots did agree and gave significant ground at the Westminster Assembly of Divines, which is the closest they came to ever achieving any form of confederation. But again, that did not become a triumph for the Presbyterians. Uh, the Scots were you know, quite willing to accept the standards of Westminster. Indeed, it became a standard for over uh, into the 20th century for the, the Church of Scotland. But there's no there's evidence for the Scots imposing their views is not is very skimpy. What the Scots, of course, did is they imposed forced quarter because they did not get the payments that were due from the English Parliament, mm. and that caused considerable resentment in the north of England and any place the Scots army was, and therefore people gave a bad press for that. You know, I mean, bad presses are not an invention of the red tops of the twenty first or the twenty. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you get various polemicists that really were very anti-Scottish and you got a lot of anti-Scottish polemics. I mean, um, you know, various people have done work on this uh, and, uh, and it just, it just is part of the actual rich culture, print culture and the newsletter culture that came out of England in the 1640s. I think that's... That's an interesting topic, and I'd like to stay with that a little while. Did anti-Scottish publications and pamphlets and, and diatribes, did they lessen once the, at any point during, during the Bishops' Wars, once, say, the Presbyterians are more, not necessarily in the ascendant, but more powerful in, say, 1640-41, and with the Scots leaving? No, well, what the Scots had to do was they had to build up their own... Uh, pro-Scottish uh, pro press. They did that with the creation of the Scottish Dove, when people like William Lithgow went down and did this, amongst others. And then they had uh, the various bits of the press supporting them, but other presses were very virulently anti-Scottish. And uh, you have also the desire to smear the Scots as Jews. I mean, Arthur Williams has written well about this. And uh, a guy called Cleland, who may indeed have been of Scottish origin, who writes about the Scots and the Jews as being nations abominable and such things. And with the particularly after the time of the Scots pulled out of England in 1647, they were attracting a virulent press from the independence, Cromwell uh, and his supporters in the New Model Army. It was a very vicious press towards Scotland then. So that kind of accelerated, I think, the difficulty was English could not come to terms easily with the fact that until 1645, that the political running in Britain was actually being made by the Scots and not by them. 
thereafter it reverted to type. I mean, this is just an aberration in a thousand years of history, but for a, most of a best part of, uh, well, from 38 to 45, the Scots were the, dictating the political agenda in a British context. In the British Revolution, you you use a term, and it's a section of a chapter, and I'd like to expand a bit more and ask you about what you mean by Gothic revivalism. Yeah, it's, it's these, these are normative terms. I should have spelt that out probably a bit more. But this really was the belief that um, it was taking beyond the sort of British, uh, the Camden view, and onto things like Richard Verstigan and others came. And it's very much also based on the triumph of the common and uh, you know the, the traditional picture is that England had been improved by invasions from the Romans onwards, but the uh, Gothic position was very much based on how the Goths were really quite uh, had brought down the Roman Empire. They had brought effectively democratic, or they brought elected government and parliament, etc. And the parliamentary systems owed more to the uh, to the Goths than it did to the Romans. So that that really is what I'm behind this. It really is. It's what is very easy to explain in the post-Brexit world. That is English, <laughs> English exceptionalism. That's what it stands for. You know, if probably I was writing the book now, I would maybe have used the term English exceptionalism rather than Gothic revival. That's really interesting. I wonder. So, how did this manifest? How did how did this Gothic revivalism actually manifest in uh, in this time period? Well, the triumph of Oliver Cromwell and independence effectively was the manifestation of uh, Gothic revivalism or English exceptionalism until the 1650s, when effectively the French became the dominant influence and Cromwell became effectively a, 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 somebody who was doing French bidding against Spain. Although, again, that's something English historians find difficult to come to terms with. That is really interesting. And I'd like to sidetrack quite substantially from the topic of this of this interview to ask you what you mean by that, because that's something I haven't heard often. Well, the fact is that, you know, France, the whole notion of um, what the Covenanters stood against was, and indeed many English stood against, was the notion of universal monarchy. That is, the the triumph of the Habsburgs tied to the Counter-Reformation. And much of the Thirty Years' War was to break that up. And at the end of the Thirty Years' War, however, the notion of universal monarchy did not go with the, uh, the, if you like, the vanquishing of the Habsburg forces. Universal monarchy, the heir to universal monarchy became Louis XIV of France. And Louis began to build this up. And in the course of this, Cromwell became effectively used Cromwell against Spain in the West Indies and against in the wars the French were pursuing against the Spanish. And uh, it's something that uh, needs to be looked at again by English historians in more detail. But it can, you, know, you can make a strong case for saying the rise of France to the position of universal monarchy was not in any way hindered by Oliver Cromwell, despite his claims for English exceptionalism. So we're, we're discovering lots of uh, potential PhD theses in this interview. <laughs> there are many to be done as long as, people, <laughs> as long as people look beyond England and Scotland and Ireland. If you look beyond that, there's various things that can be opened up. It's the, the current tendency to go back in to the, uh, the isolationist and the insular is something that I, I am not enthusiastic. It's why I'm very little involved nowadays in the 17th century. Nowadays, you're not so much involved in it, but back in 2004, you were and you published this fantastic book. But if you were to publish British Revolution now or, say, release a new edition of it or something like that, what would you change? Would there be anything you change? Is there something you'd focus more on? No, I, I'm not. I just, 
things you would tinker around the edges, you would explain the terms like British normative, Scottish, Irish perspectives were normative. Uh, that should have been done in the book. Uh, there's other work that's come on, but I don't want to launch into more and more attacks in the current generation of Scottish historians <laughs> towards insularity and introspection. I wouldn't bother doing that. Likewise, it'd be easier to explain to the general public that things like the Gothic term is English exceptionalism, and which owed its, its, owed its intellectual foundations to an actual German, Richard Verstegen. So, you know, that, that type of thing is, is worth possibly doing a bit more on, bringing out also that the English exceptionalism was again tied more to the wider European dimension. And uh, the other thing, I mean, having done some work on the French connection, I would bring a bit more of that in. But that, I, I wouldn't be thinking drastically to change it at all. It stands for its time and it will be surpassed by other scholarship and I've never I've never had problems with that. It's just part of the debate as we go on. But you just hope the debate is becoming progressive and not regressive. Uh, that I'm having my doubts about. A more recent book of yours was a biography of the Earl, then Marquess of Argyll, Archibald Campbell. So why why did you pick Argyll as a as the subject of a biography? Well, it goes back if we enter the 1980s and 90s. I won the major research award from the British Academy, which I held for several years, was to investigate the records of the House of Argyll from 1603 to 1761. Mm-hmm. And in the course of doing that, and with research and research assistance there, I came across phenomenally rich material. I was also never convinced by the, uh, you know, the, the Scottish desire to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Therefore, we get carried away with the Jacobites and the likes earlier on, the likes of Montrose. I was never impressed with Montrose. I thought he was overrated, uh, although obviously a very romantic figure. And also the work I'd done on the Gaelic side suggested that, you know, the activities of Machcola and the Irish were, were also very significant. So I wrote a guile based on the new material, which I had accrued, and quite unique material I had accrued from the very, very rich archives of Inverary Castle. And uh, so that really was a, uh, that became a focus of mine and I decided to do a bibliog- uh, an autobiography, but it took me quite some time. I mean, I put it up and put it, I started it and, and put it down a couple of times. And it wasn't until I'd done the British Revolution and done the book in the Union that I went back to do Argyle. Uh, and then it was almost like, uh, it was effectively, I mean, I've done a couple of things since then, but that was effectively my swan song to this involvement in the mid-17th century. And by all accounts, it's a, it's a fantastic swan song. Well, since we have uh, an expert on Argyle, I think it might be useful to just talk about his role in these events and to focus more on, on him in particular, because he's been, he's been present in a lot of it and he's recently come more to the fore, especially discussing the incident and, and Charles's visit and the, the tables. But I wonder, could you expand on what his role was in the Scottish Revolution? Well, if you argue that the Scottish Revolution was primarily about politics and primarily about radical politics. Argyle was the leader of what you might call the radical mainstream of the Covenanting movement. And he's the man that shaped the movement. And he's not somebody who just sat and dictated. He actually had worked in good agents in in every state. I mean, John Young and others have shown this, this importance, working in Parliament through various representatives and above, you know, Johnson of Warrison is linked to both the Shires and indeed the Kirk, and then also Keating, leading uh, ideologues and ministers on side, keeping Lothian on side in the nobility 
again, working the foreign connection, uh, keeping various uh, people involved in the Burgesses uh, on site. And he was a very, very able organiser. He, he was not a great general, as undoubtedly Montrose was, but he was far more astute politician. He also had very strong links to working with the English parliamentarians, and he also maintained links with Ulster. He genuinely was a British politician in that sense, and he did seek to promote the covenanting ideals of Confederacy. Um, and that was his solution to the British issue. He did not support union as the uh, incorporation as the engagers did, but he very much promoted Confederation. And he also had real concerns about the quality of the monarchy, first of all, Charles I, and then Charles II. And um, I, I think he was, you know, like everybody had his major flaws and all the rest of it, but he was a man without whom nothing would greatly have really changed in Scotland. He did fundamentally change Scotland. Uh, and, you know, the, the essence of revolution in Scotland was personified by Argyll, even although he himself was a, a member of the nobility. But I'm not a particular fan of Argyll, can I say that? I mean, I write a biography of him, but, you know, he's not, I don't see him as a heroic figure. I like to make that point very clear. He's not particularly heroic. He's a man who's very much out for his own interest. He's a man who's very acquisitive and he can see that he, he often confuses um, public good and private gain. You know, he would have made, nowadays, if we want an analogy, he'd have been a very good member of the British cabinet, you know. Your point that he was much more politically uh, astute than... Montrose is very clear, especially with the the fallout of the Combinol band when Montrose finds himself finds himself completely isolated and arrested. Now that was obviously some would say the Scottish Revolution had already happened by that point. But to quote uh, Lenin and others, revolution or even Chairman Mao, revolution's an ongoing process. You know, it's not just one event that's the Scottish Revolution. Revolution and, and how you centre, reorganise government, how you move towards away from monarchy, and if we stick with Aristotle from monarchy effectively to oligarchy, but that oligarchy involved people like the Shire gentry and the Burgesses having much greater say in national politics than any time they were to have subsequently, well, until the later 17th century. Also, within that revolution, I mean, things go beyond Argyle. For example, mm -hmm. things like Mochlin Moor, you get the rise of subversion, covenanting subversion, you know, which um, people like Neil McIntyre are now writing about. So, the, you know, revolution doesn't just stop when you pass an enactment. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, you know, revolutions are not tied to official records, as uh, some historians want to have it. History's never so neat. No, indeed, indeed. I mean, the, the revolutions go on and the impact and the changes made and the fact bringing people in to have a say in things. Even when you go back to the Restoration, it's never the same because people have had alternative models of government, models of involvement, models of activity. And that does lead to much greater conditions of dissent and uh, does shape subsequent uh, traditions in Scotland. So what was Argyll's role in A Covenant of Scotland? Once, the, once Charles has had his visit, it's all been rubber stamped and Charles goes back down south and, and England has its own troubles. What's... Argyle up to during all this? Well, Argyle controls the show until 1648. Uh, then he loses out temporarily to Hamilton, then he reasserts it after the engagement, and he controls the show until they put, might call the patriotic accommodation. And thereafter, he does a deal effectively with Cromwell, which doesn't... Uh, so, you know, he really had like a returning to some sort of rega huge regality or some uh, state within a state because Cromwell was unable to impose total control over Scotland. They never controlled Argyll in the Western Isles, which uh, 
which the, the Marquis continued to do. So, you know, Argyle was a man of uh, very, very good and very, not, I wouldn't say supreme, but of very important uh, and very powerful influences. And he was the most powerful Scottish politician of the 18th century, by far. But that power doesn't save him in the long run. Oh, no, he doesn't. He goes down. But I mean, that, <laughs> that doesn't mean to say he wasn't powerful. It no, just not means to say that there was an awful lot of people intending to ensure he went down. You know, his <laughs> trial, trial was not particularly fair, shall we say. And, uh, you know, there's various things that could be said one way or other. But again, Argyle was a man who was steeped in very, very shady activities from ripping people off to turning, you know, not condoning massacres, etc. He just was a very powerful figure. And I don't think there's, there was anybody as powerful in the course of the 17th century in Scotland as Argyle. Uh, but he was not a heroic figure. He wasn't a particularly nice man. Uh, he was uh, a very, very powerful man. And he stands up there uh, in the context of British context as Cromwell does. We touched on it a little bit then, his trial. So what is Argyle's fate once the restoration comes around? Well, his number's up. <laughs> once, <laughs> once Charles II gets back, it's just a matter of time for Argyle to be done. And that was uh, that, that was well that was well anticipated. Indeed, Argyle himself anticipated it. And he did. He was able, however, to get a deal for his son through Lauderdale. But um, he himself was going down. And that he was to be the big sacrifice. He was the man that, I mean, he, he moved in likely into the stage of a covenanting martyr, but he was certainly seen as the guy who, it was almost like uh, picking a guy, have a guy taken out so we can move on, turn a new chapter. We're into the restoration now. The, the covenanting days are behind us. I just accept that they weren't, but that's what, they, that's what the official position was. Get rid of a guy. So Argyle went down to London. Do you think he expected to come back alive? I don't think so. I think he. I mean, I think what Argyle was trying to do, if he he was a survivor, and what he very he was uh, quite astute. What he'd actually done was he'd bought, um, uh, effectively a pleasure boat, and what he was hoping to do was escape down the Thames and get off to Heligoland, and then be able to, uh, which is actually his own son was the, make his comeback in the 1680s. But Argyle had actually acquired. Uh, property in Heligoland, some of the islands there, and he was trying to get there. And uh, that was what uh, that was his gambit. But he knew in London the prospects of persuading Charles to anything were, were remote. So uh, I think it was uh, more him trying to... He was a bit of a gambler. I think that was what it came down to. And what was this deal he wanted to get for his son? Well, the deal, no, simply this, is the, the Argyles were always determined that they should not be forfeited and the forfeiture should not run for generations. So although he was forfeited and indeed the estate, it was only forfeited for in total for five years. And so therefore, and also his son had gone out against his father in the 1650s and had sided with Lauderdale and the more moderate and the more conservative elements, I should say. And therefore, although Argyle had been uh, on the different side from Lauderdale, they'd firmly been together. So the, uh, Lauderdale was to bring back Argyle's son by 1665. So Argyle was laying the basis for uh, to ensure that the family tradition estates would not be permanently alienated. And that had been the driving force for the House of Argyle since the 15th century. Uh, do any of his papers survive from when yes, he was going yes, down to England? He did. He wrote uh, various things and various pamphlets. Uh, he wasn't obviously a great ideologue, but he certainly could lay down certain things. And 
you know, he, he has a, a represent, you know, he has a, a representable amount of, of work, but he's not, he's not some great ideologue, etc. He's a man very much of action and policies, and the, you know, we, we, I mentioned also guys like Barclay Law and, and people in the towns of Irvine and others in Ayr and all the rest. Of, they had various letters and stuff from him, but he, he really was not somebody who felt he had to write long explanations. He did that for his son when he had time in jail to think about the, what was coming. <laughs> but uh, you know, he didn't. You know, he didn't put out manifestos to say this is what. He's a very difficult man to piece together. You really have to look at the people he's dealing with, his main agents and the Burgesses and the Shires and the nobility to find out what he's doing. And that really is. And also, there's relationships in Ulster in particular and in also England with the parliamentarians. That sounds like it was even more of an achievement to put together the biography that you did. It was the most difficult thing I've ever done, uh, simply because... When you're an historian, you don't have to worry too much if people are not there. But if you're doing a biography and Argyle's not there, you've got to say to you, why is he not there? You know, <laughs> in some cases, he was deliberately not turning up. In other cases, you know, but he had, he had a policy of deliberate absence at certain times. And that was to retain his powerful position. So working that out took some time and it took an awful lot of... You know, just basically painstaking research, having to go through and look at the gaps and records and what he did. But he was a man who also had always thought ahead. He always planned, and you have to try and establish what was if. But he always a man that at least a plan B, if not a plan C, to what he wanted to do. And establishing these plans was, you know, quite a difficult thing to do. Now that's really interesting. The idea that he would he was deliberately absent from certain events. Yeah. Are there any that are there any that stick in your mind as particularly notable? Yes, the 1641 and the Parliament 1641, the incident and various things, he mm. was absent from some of the critical committees then. He was absent uh, on uh, various other occasions, even in 1649, uh, and again in the 1650s in dealing with Charles II. He was, the, he, he was, quite, uh, he was quite capable of uh, being absent when it suited him. And for example, he was absent from Worcester. He didn't go down in the campaign to Worcester. That was his big move. And by that time, he was really preparing to shore up his own position in the West Highlands and Islands. And I don't think he was too confident. He wasn't in favour of diluting the army with royalists and others. And uh, so he hung back in that one. And that was that was probably his most prominent absence in the whole of his career. That is really interesting. And do you think he do you think he expected the king to fail at Worcester? Not necessarily, but he wasn't too keen in the way things were going because quite right. clearly. The whole covenanting radical mainstream was under complete attack. The active classes had been suspended. Um, people were being brought back and we regarded as uh, pro-Montrosian style conservatives he wasn't in favour of. Uh, and I, I think he saw that uh, the direction of travel for Scotland, if Charles II had won at Worcester, would not be particularly happy for him and his fellow radicals. I asked Professor McInnes for his thoughts on the future of the topic. I don't have a prescriptive way of where Scottish history should be going or what it should be <laughs> I can pass comment in the current directions, but I'm, I'm not trying to direct people other ways. I'm just saying, here are gaps, here's things to go, and here's where things can be done. And I'm very keen that uh, a younger generation of historians, not the current uh, middle ranking, but a younger generation can come through and be more forward-looking and be more progressive-looking and take, asking bigger questions in a wider picture. And we have to bring in also 
more and more things like the colonial dimension as well. And so these uh, activities, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a great believer in looking for a much wider context and not just drilling down to, I mean, we have particularly associated with the Edinburgh School of the 1990s onwards. It was a great triumph of the discovery of the Marquis of Huntley was in Elgin on the 3rd of June when it turned out he was in forests on the 2nd of June. You know, things like that is just antiquarianism. And I think we have to get way beyond that. I think there's three tests mm-hmm. you can apply to Scottish and British history. And the three tests of this, you know, is it insular and introspective? That's a total negative. Does it link policy and process? That is, the history of ideas linked into the history of policy. That's a very positive thing. I think that's one of the great strengths of the Scottish tradition. The danger is that we go back to looking only at, at policy and not at process or vice versa. Mm. And the third thing is that you have to look at the broader picture, the broader framework, whether that be European or colonial, whether it's domestic or, uh, or European, it has to be integrated. Scotland has to be placed in a wider world. And if we don't do that, we go back to the first point of insularity and introspection. And that's the point that worries me about the current middling generation. Well, hopefully the new generation will. Absolutely, because the great, there's great promise there. Great promise there. Yes, it is very interesting and some of it's very good, but some of it's... <laughs> So if it's too self-affirming, they just need mm-hmm. to be, I mean, the, the great test is this, that, you know, in the 1990s, Scottish historians were major players in the whole British history, etc. They also became significant players in the, what might call it the Atlantic world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were featuring regularly in conferences, uh, particularly the sort of big ones like the NABs conference in America and such things. And that's the position they've got to get back to. They've got to be seen as players not just commenting on, or everybody, oh, I'm the king of the roost in Scotland, which means nothing. They've got to be people invited. And sometimes being in a book that, say, deals with a topic like representative assemblies on a European basis is far more significant than writing just the history of Parliament for 30 years of the mid-17th century. So, you know, you have to look at the broader picture. For listeners who want to read more of your work or, or follow you in other ways, is there anything you'd recommend to them? Oh, I just think it should stand as it is. I mean, for the 17th century, I mean, my my ultimate swan song was definitely Neil's, uh, Neil's journal when I did the aftermath, afterthought for that, which was reasserting the importance of radicalism and covenanting and that. I don't really think I've got much more to say. I've done some work in, on the Catholic side, John Ogilvie and all the rest of it, but my work these days is very much geared to... Um, Jacobitism, Enlightenment and Empire. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's always something I've worked on. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, Sam, it's very important to work in different areas to give you different perspectives. And um, I'm a great believer in that, and I still am. And any future work I'm doing towards publishers is very much geared to these areas. So uh, uh, that's it, you know. So uh, in terms of the mid-17th century, I'm very much yesterday's man. One final question. Was there a Scottish revolution? Absolutely. But it, it didn't. It was not terminal dates for a couple of years. It was a revolution that changed how the, it didn't turn the world upside down, but it certainly changed and transformed political life in Scotland, indeed cultural life, and indeed also to a certain extent religious life. Um, but above all, it created um, a more. It, it broadened, if you like, the public debate, the public what is the political nation, and that was broadened and transformed in the 1640s, and it did not go away when the Restoration tried to return it to the aristocracy. I mean, there is a totally depressing 
view of Scottish history, well, it's all about crown and nobility from the 15th century to the 18th century and nothing changes. What really changed hugely and transformatively in the 17th century was covenanting. And that created a revolutionary situation and a radicalism that continued for the rest of the century and into the 18th. So that's that's what I would say. It's, it's, it is a state of mind that has changed, not uh, necessarily just offices or uh, how government works. What a fantastic answer. Professor Alan McInnes, thank you so much for joining me today. Cheers, Sam. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.